Well, we just finished looking at evangelistic prayer from 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll continue in 1 Timothy 2 next week. But for today, I'd like to have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. In just a couple of months, we'll be enjoying our celebration banquet together. Now, I understand a lot of you have not been to one yet. Traditionally, we do this in January, but this year we had illness going through our church right about that time, so we postponed until April the 23rd, I believe. You can check the website for the exact date. And the celebration banquet for us has always been a time to reflect on the blessings that the Lord gave us in the past year and to prayerfully consider the following year. That's still a couple of months away, though. And we'll be a good way through the spring already by then, so I felt like I needed to kind of use today to say a few words to you. I am hoping that I've earned the privilege of just addressing you today. I'm not really preaching a sermon. Uh, We'll enjoy the preached word tonight, along with um, baptizing about 280 of you, it seems like. (laughs) Sometimes the job of the shepherd is not only to proclaim the word of God, but to echo what is crying in your hearts. And that's what I hope to do today. And so today, if you'll indulge me just for a, a little while, I'd like to talk to you just as your shepherd. They say that hindsight is 2020. Today, I'd like to call what we're doing hindsight on 2020. Looking back at what the Lord has done. So here's my plan this morning. I'm going to organize my thoughts in terms of questions. The first question, what does the Bible say the church is to be? The second question is, where have we been as a church The third question is, what is the new reality between the world and the church? And I don't know if taking notes is going to help you today, but number four is, what has the Lord done at Grace Bible Church? The fifth question is, we're going to come back to, what does the Bible say the church is to be? And the last question is, where do we go from here? So would you pray with me for just a moment, and we'll ask the Lord to be with us. Our Father, we have sung the songs of our great faith. We have sung the songs of the gospel and of Christ. We have proclaimed that we worship you as our king, that you are great and you are mighty and you are awesome and you are worthy of our praise. Lord, we pray that you would make Grace Bible Church faithful until Christ returns. May we not be on that very, very long list of churches that falls by the wayside, that stops being faithful, that dwindles in their effectiveness. Instead, Lord, we would ask you boldly for a crescendo, for a heightening, that we would be those that would boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be those proclaiming Christ and presenting everyone mature in him. Might you be so pleased, Lord, we are aware that Jesus Christ walks among his churches and he gives commendation and he gives condemnation. And we would... Ask, Lord, to be those worthy of commendation. That the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, the one who died for our sins, would be pleased with this ministry, pleased with our efforts to proclaim his name in this world. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. So again, this isn't really a sermon, but we are going to use some scripture. Turn with me to Matthew 5. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here But the first question is, what does the Bible say the church is to be? What does the Bible say the church is to be? 
And I think we get a nice, succinct answer from the, word, from the, the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 5, verse 13. You, it's plural, all of you, not just the individuals, all of you, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You, plural again, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus gives a couple of word pictures, and they're simple for us to understand. Salt, what does it do? It makes food taste better. Light, what does light do? It takes away the curse of darkness. The point is, is that the people of God are to be salt, that which makes things better. We're to be light, that's that which takes away darkness. Jesus makes it very clear here that tasteless salt is worthless and that a hidden light is pointless. So what does it mean that the church is salt and light? Well, in a nutshell, we are to proclaim the gospel of Christ. That's the only light that matters. 2 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And if you did even just a brief survey of the history of the Church of Jesus Christ over the past 2,000 years, all throughout the New Testament and then all throughout history, the spreading of the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ always, always, always happens in the bedrock foundational context of the gathered body of Christ. We are not a group of millions of Lone Ranger Christians who are supposed to go out and be individually salt, individually light. That is true, yes. But our most effective ministry is always together. But historically, the church has often decided to take its cues from the world, to take its direction from the world. And this was the origin of the social gospel, which came to the forefront in the early 19th century. The social gospel is a satanic scheme which says that the church should be trying to solve the ills of the world by feeding the poor, participating in social programs, ending racism and oppression of every kind. These are good and noble thoughts, but it very quickly replaced the true job of the church, and that is to lead people to the knowledge of Christ. That's the only true solution. The social issues became the goal instead of the means to achieving the goal, which is to proclaim the cross. One activist associated with a social gospel organization called Sojourners, he wrote about what Jesus calls us to do. He says, this is what Jesus says, quote, Feed the hungry, make sure the thirsty have clean water, make sure all have access to health care, transform America into a welcoming place for immigrants, fix our inequitable penal system, and end abject poverty abroad and in the forgotten corners of our urban and rural communities. Where in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do you ever read of Jesus saying that? You know how many times when he was on this earth that Jesus tried to fix society? Zero. And of course, when coronavirus hit, 
Oh, the social gospelites went nuts. They are, by the way, heavily associated with the political left. They are hand in hand. And what they said was that churches should be good neighbors by shutting down. And given the fact that we were told, for example, at the beginning of April last year by our own governor that 56% of California, that's 25.5 million people, would be infected over the next eight weeks with coronavirus. We were also told that two million Californians, that's 5% of the population, would die of coronavirus. If we're told that, and if one out of 20 of us are going to drop dead, then reasonable, very temporary safety measures make sense. But that didn't happen, not even close. And yet the government took it upon themselves to increase more and more their control over churches and Even professing believers said, well, that's what it means to be a good neighbor. We're going to come back to that good neighbor idea, and we're going to blow that out of the water. I'll give you a second question. Where have we been as a church? Where have we been as a church? We've been on what might be called an ecclesiological journey, a time where we have had to learn and grow and seek the Lord as to what the church is to be about. We we thought we knew But then we had so many challenges come at us. For me personally, I have studied the Church of Jesus Christ more intently than probably in all my years of ministry combined. Back in March of last year, we heard the words that we thought in the United States we would never hear in our lifetimes, and that is churches are shutting down. Death tolls in the U.S. alone were projected to be in the millions And for the most part, churches complied with government orders to shut down. No laws were passed. They were just dictatorial orders that were given. And the multiple catchphrases that we're all familiar with now were were topped. At the very top of the list of catchphrases was the concept of flattening the curve, meaning the statistical upward trend of COVID cases and deaths, that, that if we shut down for just a little while, we'll flatten that curve. In our own church, we saw that there was this certainty of what is described as a society-wrecking-level disaster, our elders chose to shut the church down for what was supposed to be a few weeks. And during that time, we had heroic servants in our, in our technical ministry who had us up and running instantly on a, on a really high-quality live stream. It was the best we could do, and for a time, it somewhat served the needs of all of you. As a side note, we saw many, many blessings during the 13 Sundays that we remained completely shut down, we, including being able to minister to people in different states and other countries via live stream. That has been a great blessing. But in retrospect, and after reading a lot and talking to many pastors, we can look back and see that there were two reactions that churches and pastors had to the shutdown order from our governor. The first reaction across the board was shock and numbness. I would liken this to the immediate physical and emotional shock that can happen after a car accident. The the sheer astonishment and devastation that that can make thinking straight very difficult. I remember one time being in a car accident. It was horrible. I was was spinning on a freeway in downtown Dallas, Texas. My car spinning in the middle of this freeway. And I, I came to rest on a median. And I'm feeling everywhere going, all right, I think everything's there. I thank the Lord for sparing me. I thought I was fine. I got out of the car and collapsed on the ground. My legs wouldn't work. And I didn't know why. Somebody came running up and I just had to take a moment. And that's what's happened. 
I've talked to so many pastors who said the same thing. We were instantly in emergency response mode. We didn't have time to carefully weigh theological and ecclesiological implications. We were trying to figure out what to do on Sunday. We made a decision, and that was to believe the best about our governing officials. We chose to accept the predictions of a health and death crisis not seen for over a century. And based on those predictions, we believed that the best thing we could do was to cease our live worship services for a few weeks, which were predicted to be enough, again, to flatten the curve. But as part of this shutdown, which affected all non-essential businesses, the church of Jesus Christ was quickly and without any debate deemed non-essential. In other words, the church didn't deliver a service which in the government's eyes was a matter of survival, such as those vital services like Walmart, liquor stores, or casinos. The government took it upon itself to be the judge and jury of the church in terms of its relative importance to the world. Our church staff and several of you key volunteers instantly had your lives turned upside down as happened in churches all over the world. We had to figure out new ways to communicate, figure out new technology. Poor James, I was texting him 400 times a day. How do you do this? How do you do that? How do you do this? We had to figure out how to make a a video production feel like a worship service. We had to figure out how to shepherd God's people without seeing you. And countless other challenges All of these factors contributed to this first reaction of shock and instant emergency functioning mode. We were in church triage every single day, seven days a week. But the second reaction was one which provoked a response sermon from me some weeks into the pandemic. Almost immediately, a few pastors and churches began protesting the shutdown order. When when the whole world was thinking about public health and bracing for millions upon millions of deaths, Some of the church world pushed back hard and fast. And some of these protests, in my view, moved beyond peaceful civil disobedience to a more aggressive reviling and verbal abuse and denigration of government officials, which is never okay. But also, to be fair, looking back, it may be that some of those who pushed back fast avoided that shock factor that most of us were under. And maybe they were ahead of their time. We don't think that it's ever appropriate to have some sort of aggressive protest which borders on a revolt. That's not scriptural. But over the course of time, some of the arguments that were coming forward began to provoke study. And in my case, it was massive study. I've talked to so many pastors who said they were just in the books, in the Bible, continually studying the church. And we began really what you might call the ecclesiological journey I mentioned Last May, in response to the many protests being led by churches at the time, I preached a sermon on the Christian's mandate to obey the government. And it wasn't a call to blind obedience at all costs. I was very clear on that. I was very clear that there is a moment in time where that line gets crossed. It was right about this time that our friend John MacArthur, the pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, began a a very measured approach to the church's response to shutdown orders. He began to systematically challenge the right of the government to issue these church-closing mandates. He hired his own team of researchers to show that the the statistics on coronavirus being put out by the the mainstream media were not accurate. And he he had very, very bright men going through these things. Well, as the initial shock of the pandemic began giving way to more thought, a lot of study, 
Hard questions were now being presented that needed answers. I started with a list of 20. I'll give you four. When does a church shutdown order cross the line from a temporary health measure to a long-term abuse of government power? What are the terrible effects of the church not meeting together, which are far worse than health risks? Is live stream worship service an oxymoron? And at what point does Romans 13, the Christian's mandate to obey the government, reach its limit and now peaceful, quiet, civil disobedience is called for? And frankly, this doesn't even begin to cover all the questions that leaders in the churches were facing and still are. Well, when churches in California were allowed to meet again, it was at very low attendance capacity. Now, I say allowed with somewhat of a a cynical tone because it's the prerogative and right of the church to meet and no human has the right to allow or disallow the congregation of God's people. It's very similar to Pilate thinking he had authority over Jesus and Jesus said, you wouldn't have any authority unless God gave it to you. The low capacity didn't hurt our relatively small church that much. The congregations of several thousand were being mandated to have a maximum of 100 people, even if they had a sanctuary that seated 3,000. What was that? In reality, that made that a continued shutdown order, discriminating against larger churches, saying, you can be a church as long as you're little. Then we went to outdoors only again, then minimal capacity indoors again, then outdoors only again. And with each step, the government became more forceful in its communication of insistence on compliance. They used to give us uh, time frames. This will happen for the next two weeks. After a while, it just became open-ended. So at what point was enough enough? At what point was the church so hurt, so crippled, that leaders in the church ought to get back to the business of shepherding the flock of God no matter the consequences. For me personally, these past months have been the most intense of my 25 years in the gospel ministry. There's not even a close second, really. The desire on my part, the desire on the part of countless pastors to rightly lead the people for whom God has made us spiritually responsible. Hebrews 13, 7 says this, 17 rather, this is weighed on me, it's weighed on others, I think more heavily than at any other time. In our church, every single ministry was gutted and gasping for air because of COVID. All the work that we had done over the past eight years in building the ministry and building what God was doing here, we just scrapped it all. And I could see, as I visited with you and our elders called you and we visited together, I could see you longing for the fellowship that Christ made us to enjoy. You longed to receive the Lord's table together. You longed not just to sing God's praises, but to sing to one another. As Ephesians 5.19 says, you longed to embrace one another in Christian love. You longed to hear the word of God preached in person with that accountability that comes from looking your pastor directly in the eye. For me, it was a detailed look into ecclesiology like I've never done before. And this was in the spirit of 1 Timothy 4.15. Paul told Timothy, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And so I needed to make progress. I needed to learn. I needed to grow. I needed to read and study. And so over these months, I chronicled my own personal growth through a series of messages that I preached all year. Last July, when singing was declared illegal... We did a message on the mandate of Scripture to sing to the Lord. And we had one Sunday of no singing. 
which is burned into my heart forever is one of the lowest moments, not in ministry, one of the lowest moments of my life. I think many of you would say the same. Never again will somebody tell us not to sing. Never again. I preach from Psalm 46. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. That's always a good reminder. Look ahead to what's coming. At this point, it became very clear, as one of my pastor friends here in town said, quote, the government mandates concerning the church are not passing the sniff test. That was the theological term. Why is he saying this? Well, things like churches in California being fined upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars, arrests being threatened. Now, I began studying the non-negotiables of the church, and guess what we found? In my message from 1 Timothy 1, 6, and 7, we found that the biggest non-negotiables of the church, things like worship in general, preaching in particular, the observance of ordinances, church discipline, the fellowship of believers, the exercise of spiritual gifts, we found that scripturally, Every single one of those happen in the context of the gathered body of Christ. You can't do any of those through a camera. None of them. Could I put it this way? The church that will not gather is not the church. It's not. What does church mean? Ecclesia. Gathering. Then we sent out a video I did on the history of the interpretation of Romans 13. And we found that history is very clearly on the side of the government staying out of church business, that just because the government has all the guns and controls law enforcement and has all the power, has the brute force to do whatever they want, that doesn't give them the right to assume the headship over the church of Jesus Christ. It is not the church of California. It is the church of Jesus. Last September, I preached a message that we called, What About Jehoshaphat? And we looked at the Israelite king of Judah in the 9th century B.C. who made a stand on God's behalf that his people would gather in God's house no matter what was happening, including plague and pestilence. We showed from Scripture that being a believer in Christ is a call to costly worship. Can I put it this way? We're not called to stay safe. We're called to stay faithful. This world is not safe. We've already been told that. And your, your response to that message was overwhelming. By God's grace, it found some traction online, and a number of churches actually used that message to form their own uh, process moving forward, their own position. Well, we made, finally, I guess what you could call a full circle. I began this journey by preaching on the Christian's mandate concerning the government. And last November, right before the election, I preached on the government's mandate concerning the Christian. The government's mandate from God. And I proved from Scripture that for the government to restrict or limit the worship of God for any reason at all is in essence an attempt to put God at cross purposes with himself. Why is that? Because God instituted government and God instituted the church. For the government to say the church can't be the church is to say God is in an argument with himself. And that's wrong. One of the main points we made from Scripture is that a completely secular government without fear of God, that was never God's plan, ever. People have made so many comparisons to the Spanish flu uh, pandemic of 100 years ago. You know what was different in the United States? Local and state governments were, with their hat in their hands, going to the churches and asking, could you help us? Not this time. The difference is that the government mandate 
You're going to do what we say. That's the difference. There is no comparison. Just for good measure, we did a 10-message series on Satan and his schemes. We recognize that Satan does not play fair. He doesn't have a rule book. You cannot form a theological position based on the government, based on the Center for Disease Control, or on CNN. You form a theological position for the church on one basis only, and that is the Word of God. If you will base it on anything else, you are a false teacher. There's nothing else. It is the Word. There is no asterisk that says, oh, unless things get hard, then we'll quit being the church. Well, that's where we've been as a church. I have a third question I'd like to address. What is the new reality between the world and the church? We have seen and are currently seeing persecution happening in nations with supposedly, supposed religious freedom. Unbelievers accuse us as Christians of breaking rules, then crying persecution when the government calls them on it. There's one small problem with that line of reasoning. That assumes that the government rules are the highest order of authority. And they're not. When it comes to worship, we do not report to Governor Newsom. We report to King Jesus. And that's it. There is no other. What's been happening in the past few years, even before coronavirus? In looking at the persecution of Christians around the world, one extensive study made some Very precise and helpful observations. This study was launched in 2014 by a team of 15 PhD scholars studying persecution in 25 countries. Christian persecution in the world, they found, occurs in five basic political contexts. Communist regimes, such as China, Vietnam, Laos, North Korea, and Cuba. Authoritarian and national security states. South Asian countries influenced by religious nationalism, meaning that their false religion influences their government process, Muslim-majority countries, and then Western countries that embrace socialism. That's where persecution is happening. Now, they said about Western countries, quote, while restrictions and hostilities in the West are milder than in the other types of regimes, they are growing and merit concern. You want to know why they merit concern? Because in the other countries of the world where persecution is deeply intense, one of the things that Christians have done historically is to cry out to and call out to the countries that do have religious freedom to help them. But the list of those is going down and down and down. Five years ago, one organization listed only one nation on earth, North Korea, as what they would call extreme in their persecution of Christians. That was five years ago. They now say there are 12. And it's getting bigger. This study defined persecution as closing churches or breaking up religious gatherings. That's happening now in the United States. It's happening now in other countries with supposed religious freedom. Intimidation or threats against church leaders. That's happening now in the U.S. and in other countries with supposed religious freedom. The arrest, the imprisonment, and torture of church leaders. Arrests of Christians and and pastors are happening now, more so in other countries. But here's the irony. There are countries which socialists in the United States want to imitate. And in many cases, persecution happens incrementally with things like registering a church with the state or requiring an ever-increasing number of permits and licenses to build or maintain a facility. That's already happening in in the United States. Now, why is Christianity in particular targeted? Obviously, this is Satan's scheme, but from a purely human standpoint, 
Why is, why is our faith targeted? Well, this study analyzed the places in which persecution is the most intense and found a correlation, this is obvious to us, that Christians bow to God as king and therefore we don't see human authority as the ultimate authority. Yes, we obey the legitimate laws which accurately reflect God's morality, but because Christians see God as the ultimate authority and human authority as given by God as a stewardship, Christianity, quote, has an intrinsic association with pluralism and freedom. As a matter of fact, they found that the more centralized a governing system, the more centralized a ruling system becomes, the more the persecution against the church increases. And history has proven this over and over again. In fact, this study demonstrated that the more socialist and centralized the government became, Christianity is less and less seen as a helpful moral compass to the nation and more and more seen as a political threat which threatens the wicked agenda of power to the few. For example, President Biden, who continually decried the so-called dictatorial rule of President Trump, he's on pace to sign more executive orders than any president in history. You know what that makes him? Makes him a dictator. Because he is dictating to us without the process that we have in place. And the more and more this happens, the more you can expect the government to interfere with the church, to be emboldened to do so. And, and listen, this is, a, this is a misnomer. Persecution is not always simply motivated by a hatred of the belief system of Christians. That's not the motivation. It's empowered by governments who see Christianity as a threat to their power because Christianity is highly associated with personal freedom, personal autonomy. And so persecution isn't always overt in terms of, we hate your faith, so we will persecute you. Instead, persecution happens in countless subtle ways. This study says in order to gain power over the church and to create a society of conformity and fear. Now, what about those who say that churches are whining about persecution when it's self-imposed? Is it really self-imposed? Consider this. Written just a couple of weeks, within a couple of weeks of each other, two very different commentaries on the, the role of religious gatherings during the COVID time in Canada exposes the hypocrisy and the weakness of those who say that Christians are creating persecution on their own. One article says that any concerns about religious gatherings in mosques as those being a spreader event, a super spreader, it is, quote, a clear indicator of Islamophobia, a hatred of Muslims. The other article, written within about 13 days, asserts that the Christian church gatherings, quote, are the quintessential super spreader event. You see the difference? And this isn't just a random comparison. You are very hard-pressed to find anything negative written about Muslims who continue to gather illegally. You don't see anything about it. And the media is full of stories about churches that are continuing to gather. Now, we expect that from the secular media. If you still watch CNN and a tear comes to your eye, check your pulse because something's going on. <laughs> we expect that from unbelievers. But what about those who claim to represent the church of Jesus Christ? Relevant Magazine is a website dedicated to the seeker-sensitive movement in which the church is supposed to be as much like the culture as possible, that we attract people to the gospel. 
we make the gospel more relevant, as it were, and they've posted many articles defending all the same things that the world is defending, that social distancing is more important than singing, that masks are more important than fellowship, and so forth, all these things. For example, one popular article written just a couple of weeks ago, it was called, Three Ways the Church Needs to Change in 2021. And the author listed her opinion on how churches have failed in 2020. Here are the three ways that we failed in 2020. The first failure is that we kept meeting instead of making new traditions, such as giving up our church buildings and pursuing social justice. She said that's a bad witness to the community. The second failure is that the countless protests and riots of 2020 were legitimate and the church should have worked harder, quote, to avoid gathering in an effort to come alongside the marginalized community, that somehow the church not gathering would be a support to the protesters. I couldn't figure out the logic on that one. The third failure is a failure by pastors who used the pulpit to call out ungodly politicians because pastors wanted to get famous doing this. Oh, wow. Somehow she was able to see into the heart of every single pastor and know his motives. Instead, she says, pastors were supposed to mobilize their churches to give money to the rioters and the social justice causes. Now, what's noteworthy about this particular article telling us how the church failed in 2020 is that her so-called ecclesiology has zero reference to Scripture whatsoever. What do you call a professing Christian who makes assertions without supporting those assertions with a biblical argument? That is the classic definition of a false teacher. And every church leader, every church elder, every church pastor that has said we need to do A, B, and C and not supported it with a clear biblical argument has fallen into that trap. Listen, the crisis isn't just between the world and the church. The crisis has been within the church and has caused a divide. Now, lest you think that's bad news, that's good news. That is good news. 1 Corinthians 11 Beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there, listen to this, must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Can I just say this? Anyone who now says this is merely a health crisis and not a spiritual crisis needs to take a look at his or her heart and wake up. But here's the good news. It's bad news that is good news. The bad news that's good news is that we already know that the world's not going to get any better. We've already been told this. Read your Bible. Your eyeballs just get huge as you get closer to the end. You're like, whoa, this gets bad. It does. We already know that in this world, the church of Jesus Christ is regarded as folly. We're regarded as idiots. We don't try to make friends with the world. They don't want to be friends with us. We already know that Jesus promised in John 13, John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. But we also know that Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Not now, not politically, not with a social gospel. No, Jesus has overcome the world by virtue of the fact that every day, as the world gets worse and worse, The ranks of the kingdom of God through the new believers in Christ get bigger and bigger and bigger. That every single day more are added to the kingdom. And someday Christ will return and he will overcome the world in every single way. But for now, it seems like the world is winning. The reason is because it is. 
But that's not where our hope is. Our hope doesn't lie in changing laws. Our hope doesn't lie in, in changing governments or, or in the next election. Our hope is in a soon-coming king. I say this not as your pastor, but just as a person quoting another Christian after the last election. Somebody said, quote, I never thought I'd wish for Obama back. Why is that? Because people, our world is getting worse and worse. Scripture said it's going to, but that's good news because that means we can stay focused. We can stay with our nose to the grindstone for the gospel. Speaking of which, fourth question, what has the Lord done at Grace Bible Church? And I'm going to call this in the past 49 weeks since our first shutdown. What has the Lord done at Grace Bible Church? The attempted control and shutdown of churches has begun awakening the true church around the world. There is a determination and a drive I have never seen in my lifetime in the ministry. You see, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. God is awakening the true church. We're seeing what potentially I believe could be the next great revival. That as Christians become more and more persona non grata, the church only strengthens. If the atheists and the godless would simply read church history, they would see, wait a minute, every time they get persecuted, the church explodes with new believers. Yep, because what, what man means for evil, God means for good. All of this is under the sovereignty of God, and, and God in his graciousness has been so kind and marvelous to us in our little tiny corner here of the body of Christ. In just my short eight years at Grace Bible Church, God has overall done some very amazing things. And every single year at our celebration banquet, we have so many blessings to count. We have to read through them as fast as we can because there isn't time. And it seems that every year the Lord continues to be gracious and kind. He gives us new converts, new members. You've been faithful to respond to the discipleship and the training and the preaching that we've given you. You've responded by being more and more effective in the church, more and more effective outside the walls of the church. And here's the irony. Each and every year, we can count God's blessings and his faithfulness to us. And yet, in the midst of the worst crisis last year to hit the church of Jesus Christ in 100 years, in the midst of a 13-week shutdown in our own church, in the midst of what felt like a survival mode that will never end, the past year by far has been the best year Grace Bible Church has ever had. Absolutely, not even a close second. I've heard this from so many pastors. I, I call pastors, they call me, hey, how's your church doing? Well, we're suffering like crazy, but man, we're exploding. I hear that all over the place. All the pastors I've spoken to have one common denominator. They determine to make certain to honor Christ as the head of the church and to the best of their ability, just do business as usual. Let me give you some examples of how the Lord has blessed us. Early on in the COVID crisis, we released you from your promises and obligations to our joyful generosity campaign, building campaign. We had just officially restarted just a couple of months ago. But during that time from March of last year, including the six months or so that you supposedly stopped giving to joyful generosity, the Lord provided through you $195,000 when you stopped giving. It puts us in a much better position to continue looking for a, a facility, which we're doing very actively right now. But that's not all the Lord did through you. We met as elders and we braced for a huge financial downturn 
for 2020 because of COVID and how this would affect your incomes, your jobs. <laughs> Pastor David was asking if he should polish up his resume. You gave $136,000 over budget last year. That's just to the general fund. You know what you said? You said you want the church of Jesus Christ to be what it was meant to be. That's what you said. In seminary, we're taught people vote with their feet and with their checkbooks, and you did both. By the way, this included things like corporate matching gifts, Amazon smile purchases you made, and all of a sudden, right after the stimulus checks came out last year, we got a whole bunch of checks for $1,200. It's a good thing. We'll need every dime to get in on our next facility since in this past year we've seen many wonderful new faces. We don't normally do this, but could I ask you a favor? If you have joined or begun attending Grace Bible Church since COVID hit 49 weeks ago, could you stand, please? Where are the rest of you? You can be seated. We checked the numbers, and I I didn't believe it at first, but um, we're just shy of 100 new members and attendees, all to the glory of God. Many of you became new members when you came from other churches that either stopped meeting or stopped feeding you spiritually, and we've heard from many of you that when COVID shut down your churches, you were looking for spiritual nourishment, and you began to look outside the walls of your own church, and you found out that what you had been being fed was spiritual garbage. And you found truth and you found the word of God and you began searching for expository preaching. And I think I speak for all of us when I say we're so happy to have you here. We're so grateful for you and so thankful to have the opportunity to feed you spiritually. And that's our hope. That's our dream. Our ministries were gutted by the shutdown with COVID. We can honestly say that right now everything is up and running Our leaders are trying to keep up with you. We have more women's discipleship happening than ever before, more men's discipleship, more musicians than ever before, more small groups and small group members than ever before, more elders and deacons than ever before. In the past year, I preached more sermons than I ever have in 25 years of ministry. I got to preach 150 times last year. We learn more hymns than ever before. Our student ministries is serving more teens than ever before. Don't polish your resume, David. We need you. Our children's ministry, if you can listen, you probably hear them. They're busting out of their walls. Some of you crawling out, begging for mercy because you're being overrun. More children hearing the gospel every single week than ever before. Our Spanish ministry is growing. We're putting our sermons translated into Spanish online every week now. Our website is serving more people than ever before. In the last six months, We've had over 6,000 users, 77% of them are new users to the website. 19% of the visitors to our website are international from Canada, South Africa, China, India, the UK, and 83 other countries. Our YouTube channel has had 30,000 hours watched with 154,000 views and 2.1 million impressions on our YouTube site. Our Little media ministry, Steadfast in the Faith, in the past six months has had 1,400 visitors, 94% of them new visitors, 55% of them from outside the U.S., from 76 other countries, with the Philippines leading the way because we have a radio broadcast there. How gracious and kind God has been to our church. How kind. You want to know why? It's very simple. 
Because we said Christ is the head of the church and may he bless us and we will go up or down with whatever he says because he's the head. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And apparently he meant that. I have a fifth question. I want to come back to what does the Bible say the church is to be? Again, in Matthew 5, Jesus said we're to be salt and light. The salt that makes no difference, throw it out. The light that is covered is useless. Many, many have supported churches staying closed, and the proof they give is Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And therefore... We're supposed to help our neighbor by keeping them physically healthy. Listen very carefully. This is nothing more than a recycled, whitewashed social gospel. That's all it is. Then now the calling of the church is defined by the world, that we're supposed to take our cues from what the world is saying. You should love your neighbor as yourself because Jesus said so. How about this? You need to know Jesus before you can quote Jesus. We've also heard the argument So we can be a good witness. Silence is never a good witness. Closing our doors to the world? What sort of twisted, idiotic, blind, darkened logic is that? The church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3 was commended by Christ for being the faithful church of the open door, not the terrified church of the locked door. We will not be scared. We will not be afraid. We will not be terrified. We have eternity in heaven. We need to be brave now. I would challenge anyone to find one person anywhere on planet Earth that said this. You know, I wasn't going to become a Christian. I was walking in my sin and rebellion against God. But once I saw these churches shutting down, I just knew that I needed forgiveness of my sins and needed to repent and be converted to Christ. No one's ever said that. That person does not exist. Faith in Christ does not come from watching the church cower away from their responsibility. No, Romans ten seventeen says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And that word, as Paul said just a couple of verses earlier, is proclaimed by means of preaching and preaching happens in the gathered body of Christ. Nobody comes to faith because church is shut down. Millions come to faith because they refuse to shut down. We're not going to stop. We're not going to stop. How gracious God has been to us here at Grace in this past year. Well, I have one last question. Where do we go from here? I've heard this argument, and, and I understand it, and I understand the concern, and I understand the, the human factor here, and I understand that there's probably some compassion motivating this question. Well, the question is, what if people get sick if we are open as a church? You know what the answer to that is? People are already sick. They're already sick. Every human being on planet Earth is dying from the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb. Sin has made him to have the clock start ticking. And what good does it do to protect somebody from coronavirus and not save them from hell? That's why we're here. We're not here to keep people from getting sick. We're here because they're already sick. 
And we praise God for all those that have contracted coronavirus and had to look in the mirror of their own hearts and say, I could die from this. What's going to happen if that happens? God has used this. People are already sick. We need the doors open because of that fact. How about this question? What if we're not faithful to proclaim the gospel? What if we waste time trying to please the world instead of trying to please our Savior? Can you imagine standing before the Savior and having him say, explain your faithfulness? Well, I made sure that people didn't have a temperature. Or I made sure that they went to the clinic. We're not Grace Bible Clinic. We're Grace Bible Church. Who are we trying to please? It is to Christ and Christ alone that we will give an account. There's nobody else. The CDC will be blown off the map when Christ returns. Who who cares? It's going to be only Christ. I don't know what the immediate future holds. But we do know what the church is supposed to be doing. This is a shocking answer. You ready? What is the church supposed to be doing? What we've always done. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That never changes. It's always the same. We are the salt of the earth to represent Christ and we will not lose our saltiness. We are the light of the world. We will not hide the light as revealed through the church. We're not the, the, the online presence of the truth. We're not the YouTube channel of the truth. We're not the website of the truth. We're not the publication of the truth. We're not the sidewalk of the truth. We're not the back door of the truth. We are the pillar and foundation of the truth. And a pillar only works when it's with a bunch of other pillars. It's the only time it works. This past week, Pastor James Coates of Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada, was arrested. He was detained for the terrible crime of holding a church service. They've kept him in solitary confinement. He appeared before a judge who offered to free him if he would agree to stop being a pastor. And he may remain imprisoned until his court date. He was transported in handcuffs and ankle shackles. The government is accusing him of being, quote, a danger to the health and safety of Albertans. James's wife, Erin, wrote this week, She said, may God have mercy on our nation. I read to my children the work the Lord is doing in people through James so they can see the sacrifice of their father is not in vain. My prayer is that men will stand. They can't see that if they shut shut us down on this issue, then they will shut us down on any issues they deem to be a danger to the health and safety of Albertans. There it is. Do you understand this whole thing is a setup to be able to shut churches down for any reason? Costi Hinn wrote on this topic this week. He said, quote, One day in the Western world, perhaps sooner than ever than we think, preachers will be jailed and churches shut down for preaching their biblical view on marriage, gender, and all of life. This will, of course, be for the good of public health and safety. Aaron Coates continued writing. She said, My heart is broken. They tried him in secret. The officers lied to us and told us he wasn't there. This isn't communist China 50 years ago. This is last week. They tried to hide him and sneak him out the back door. 
In the province of God, one of our men was there. The officer only allowed this man to tell him that he loved him and we are here with him. They pulled him away. The conditions of his release are that he would not pastor anymore. By the way, they're not allowing his wife to visit him either. Just a couple of days ago, Aaron posted a note of gratitude for the outpouring of support they've received. It's a long post, but please let me read the end of it to you. This is from the wife of an imprisoned pastor. What is something tangible you can do? Open your churches. Worship Christ. Practice the one another's. Sing your hearts out. Let your pastor see your eyes as he preaches the word of God to you. Don't underestimate this task in your life. Obey Christ with all you have. Proclaim his excellencies through this. Use this as conversations for those who do not know Christ and let the spirit do a work we have never seen And she adds a personal note. Please keep praying for us. My children are broken, yet resolved. Pray for James. Isolation can break the strongest of men. Listen, and I say this in a spirit of shepherding and yet a spirit of warning. If you think that it's still right to submit to that sort of oppression in the name of so-called health and safety, I would remind you of the words of the Apostle Peter who said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I would use the words of the Apostle Paul who said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I would use the words of the Apostle John who said, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And I would use the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Sardis, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It's time to choose sides. It is time to choose. Choose Christ. When the next crisis hits, that the government wants to leverage into an excuse to exert control over the very bride of Christ, the very body of Christ, the bought and paid for ecclesia, gathered church of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we will not shut down. They caught us off guard once, never again, never again. And I'll tell you this, for me personally, I will never again preach in this pulpit with those doors locked, ever If you want the word of God, I don't care if two out of three people are dropping dead. I'll be here. I'll preach to three. I'll preach to 30. I'll preach to 300. I'll preach to 3,000. That's up to you. But I will be here. These doors will be open. Are we kind of clear on that? (laughs) We have a lot of Bible to cover. We have a big, mighty, awesome God. Listen carefully. He has purchased our gathered praise. And if we do not gather, we steal that glory which is rightfully his. Amen? Never again. You know what's happening in the church in Alberta? They've got James in jail. They just got the next pastor up preaching. They'll probably arrest him soon. They'll get the next one up. There's going to be a lineup of guys who want to preach in that pulpit. What are they going to do? Fill the prisons? Eventually it'll turn on them. And God will build his church. Many of you sitting here are evidence of the fact that God has been so gracious. He has blessed an effort to simply be faithful. And that's what we're going to do.
What's our job as the church? Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And we're not going to stop. We're not going to stop at all. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, may we be faithful. May we be those, Lord, that are commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you. We praise you for this little tiny corner of the body of Christ. You've been so gracious to us. Tonight, we'll baptize a half dozen who are proclaiming Christ publicly. Lord, it was because of you that we filled the frontier with our new members. You've been so kind. You don't need Grace Bible Church, and yet you glorify yourself through us. I pray, God, that we would be faithful in the future. I don't know what's going to happen, and only you know. I don't know if we'll have relief or if restrictions will simply continue to grow in the coming years. But in any case, may we be faithful, Lord. May we be those that would choose Christ, that would choose the church of Jesus Christ at all costs. We are not called to be safe. We are called to be faithful. I praise you and thank you for this body of believers gathered here, this little piece of ecclesia. I pray your blessing on them. I pray that every one of them would be effective in their spheres of influence. We pray that you would bring many to faith. We pray for the opportunity to disciple them. And Lord, we continue to have need of a, of a larger facility. We're thankful to you for the growth you've given us, but we pray, Lord, for the funds to finish our little savings program. We, we need your help. We would ask you to provide. It's all for your glory. It's all for Christ. There will be a day when all the world looks up and like lightning flashing from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be a day when the kings and the great ones of the earth see the coming of Christ and they call out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But in that day, we will be those clothed in the white robes of the righteousness given to us by Christ, following Him. And as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we will always be with the Lord. And when the Lord Jesus Christ sits on the throne that is rightfully His and assumes the rulership of the whole world, in that day, there will be no doubt who is the King of kings. There will be no doubt who is the Lord of lords. And we will praise you and we will thank you, and we will honor you, and we will glorify you. In the meantime, help us to be faithful now. I would pray, Lord, that this coming year, 2021, would be a year that you would graciously use us to bring the lost to Christ, to proclaim the excellencies of your name, to disciple those who know you, and to see the kingdom of Christ expanded. We would do it for your honor. We would do it for your glory. We point all credit to you. And it is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.